Well, good morning. All right. Thank you. Some hearty good mornings there. My name is Aiden. I'm an associate pastor here on staff, and I have the pleasure of wrapping up the 40 Days of Prayer uh, sermon series that we've been going on, uh, going through. We've been joining with many other churches in our denomination, uh, focusing on this 40 Days of Prayer. Pastor Aaron mentioned it's, uh, there's that All of Jesus Night of Prayer and Worship uh, on the 10th. To fi- that's the kind of the ending of it to wrap it up. Uh, again, if you're just catching on to this now, we encourage you, hey, there's like five days left, six days left jump in, you can be praying, or you can start now and pray for 40 days. It's not like, hey, there's all sorts of options here. Uh, And it is all about Jesus. If you've noticed, uh, there's this theme of reawakening, and it's reawakening to different aspects of who Jesus is, what his mission is. Last week, reawakening to the mission of Christ. Pastor Chad was preaching about reawakening to the the church of Christ. We were um, about reawakening to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, reawakening to the spirit of Christ. And so today's message is reawakening to the return of Christ. So then this is something that I personally needed to be reawakened to. Like if I think about how often do I think, and in the forefront of my mind, thinking, well, Christ is returning. And how often does that influence my actions and my thoughts and my behaviors? And like if I'm honest with myself and honest with you, it's like, I don't think about that all that often. And I start to wonder why. This is something that's very clear in Scripture. Very clear. It says it's coming like a thief in the night. And uh, I don't know if many of you remember. Anybody remember like in the 70s, there's that movie that came out on A Thief in the Night. All right? I think I watched it on replay when I was a kid. It was, it was on TV then. Uh, or or if, you, if you didn't catch that one, it seems like this, this idea of the return of Christ kind of comes in these cycles and these fads that it was popular then and then it kind of faded away. And then in the 90s, there was the Left Behind series. Anybody read Left Behind? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember that was like one of the first times that I knew of people like pre-ordering books. Like one book was released and then, oh, what happens next? Well, you could read the Bible. I was like, no, I want to hear the story. And like, so there'd be lines in bookstores to purchase the next book. I'd never heard of that until then. I think I was like 15, 16 when those came out. And then it turned into a movie in the 2000s, Left Behind with Kurt Cameron. Anybody see those movies? Yeah, and then I think it was, re- I didn't catch it, it was like 20, last year or this year, they redid it, re-released it in the last, and maybe it was five years ago, I don't know when it was, but they re-released it. I didn't see that at all. Um, and it's caught the more, more recent ones. Yeah. So it's like this, this, this it kind of keeps resurfacing, and, and, then it, and then it sort of fades into the background. And yet like that, that first one that I mentioned, a thief in the night, that's, that's what scripture says, that, that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. It's gonna be this surprise that, that we're not like, prepared for or ready for. And I, I'm kind of realizing, I'm like, well, that's probably me because I'm, this, I don't think about this very often. And, and so many of us like, handle surprises very differently. I mean, some of you are like, yeah, I'm ready for this. I'm not gonna be, too, you know, I might be surprised, but I'm ready for this. And even my, my kids, handle surprises differently. My son, who's older, he, he doesn't want to know what the surprise is. If you say, hey, all right, we're going to go out to dinner, but it's going to be a surprise. It's like, okay, don't tell me where we're going. I don't want to know. And there's my daughter, who she's like, okay, where are we going? It's a surprise. I want to find out. I really think it's just so she can tell her brother to ruin the surprise. Um, but at least, you know, she wants to know the surprise. Any of you out there like Christmas gifts? How many of you like, I'm going to try it when you were a kid. Maybe you still do this. I'm going to try and find the Christmas gifts so I can know what it is. Some of you, yeah, yeah, thank you, those who are honest. And some of you are like, I'm not even going to look because I don't want to know. I want to be surprised. 
uh, or, or uh, some of us respond to them differently. I, I think of when we were in Williamsport, um, uh, the lead pastor up there, Spencer Sweeting, he took his family on vacation for a week and a half, and he had this idea, like, hey, what if we did one of those like, home makeovers while he was gone? So one of our, one of our friends who was a, a remodeler and uh, con- contract, he's like, yeah, I think I could do this in a week. So we tore down a wall between their kitchen and their dining room, tore out all the cabinets, tore up all the flooring, refinished the floor all within a week. And I, I, I spent several hours there like with a, a hand grinder going around the edges or a, a, a sander. And then we finished it all. And then I remember we all gathered together for whenever they came home from vacation. It was night. And uh, so his, his wife's name's Beth. And all of us had our phones out like to videotape it. And she opens the door and she comes in. She's like, What? you guys. He's like, Wah! and just so excited, like screaming and like just, just couldn't get enough of like this surprise. And I, I wonder if like when Jesus returns, if that'll be some of us, that'll be like, what? Yeah, he's here. And then there's, there's people like me who don't handle surprises very well, apparently, um, that my wife thought, what a great idea. We'll do a 30th surprise birthday party for my husband. And they had it all planned out, and these people gathered together. And the, the idea to get me in the house, which I'm like, I don't know if that's the best idea, but we'll let it go. Um, you judge. So she said, well, we, we, were, we had a, a reservation for a restaurant, supposedly, and I didn't realize it was fake, but I'm like, I like to be on time for things, okay? So, but we got a phone call on the way there that, oh, our friend locked herself out of the house. And uh, we were like, well, we'll just swing by on our way and let her in. And so we pull into the parking space, and I, I hand the keys over to Emily. It's like, it's my birthday. She could probably, you know, go in in the cold and, you know, let her in. It's my birthday. So, so I was like, here, why don't you go let her in? And she's like, no, you can. I was like, what? Okay. So I grab the keys, and I'm in a hurry, and I'm rushing. Run up to the door and unlock the door for her. I think I turn the handle. I'm like, all right. Her name was Amy. Thanks, Amy. See ya. And she's like, but wait. Yeah. Come on, I need you inside. I was like... Are you serious? We are late. And then finally, like, okay, fine. I open the door, and then like 30 people or whatever say, surprise. I'm like, hi, guys. I didn't even say anything. I'm like, just so, I think my brain just processes so slowly. That it was not what I was expecting. Completely reframing the night. I'm like, pr- thinking and processing, and like, Emily walks up. I'm like, are you okay? You hate this, don't you? You hate, I'm like, I just, I had no idea. I wonder if that's how some of us will be when Christ returns. Just that, like, I had no idea. Just processing, just trying to catch up. But the church hasn't always been this way. I think the, the early church, one of their greetings of how they greeted each other was Maranatha, Aramaic for come, Lord. Even when they saw each other, they, they were like, ah, oh, it's good to be together, but oh, we long for that day when Jesus is with us, when he calls us home. When we look at scriptures, we see it all throughout the New Testament. One scholar says that approximately one out of 25 verses in the New Testament refers to Jesus and his coming in some way. Jesus himself talked openly, like we're going to look at a passage today about Jesus talking about the signs of the ends of the time and when he returns and what that's like. Acts, there's a, an angel that, that as soon as Jesus ascends, there's angels with the disciples that says, yeah, Jesus is going to return to you in the same way that he left. The New Testament writers, Paul, not all of his books, but most of them have a reference to Jesus' return. He's coming. Peter 3.10 writes about the day of the Lord that that will come like a thief in the night. And and, and Paul, back to him, in Titus 2.13, he says that Jesus has returned. This this is our our blessed hope is in his coming. 
And then we look at like, the Revelation. We were singing earlier the Revelation song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Most Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, that book is all about Christ's return and the restoration of all things. And, and I even think about our denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, that this is one of the four things that, that, that our denomination is like, the, what we call the fourfold gospel, that the founder, A.B. Simpson, like these are the four ways, that we, four ways that we can experience Christ. The first one is Christ as Savior, that we would know him as our Savior, that we'd have this salvation experience of coming to know him as Christ and putting our faith in him. And I think the evangelical church does a great job of Christ as Savior. And the second one, the fourfold gospel, is Christ as sanctifier, that we would know Jesus in, in a way that we, we, we try then, after, even after salvation, to make ourselves holy, and we find we can't do this alone, and so we need Jesus to come and be our sanctifier, the one who makes us holy. We think of Christ as healer, is the third part of the fourfold gospel, that, that um, and Isaiah says that by his wounds we are made whole, and we pray for physical healing, and that was an experience that the founder he went through, A.B. Simpson, was healed and then the fourth one, Christ is coming king. And I think about that, and I think, how often do we focus on Christ as coming king and what that means and the motivation that's behind that of what, how we engage with that and what that means for us and for our church? So I think, like, I need to be reawakened to this idea that the return of Jesus. So I think, I'm, I'm guessing I'm not alone. Like, what does it look like to be reawakened to this? So today we're looking at Mark chapter 13. We're going to hang out in the Mark 13. So if you have a Bible with you, let's go ahead and turn there. I'm going to start in verse 1 and see what, uh, what Jesus says about these signs of the close of the age and the disciples um, in their conversation here. So it starts out this way. Mark 13, verse 1. It says, And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And we're going to pause right there for a second. Can you imagine the scene here of the disciples, you know, that they were just in the temple? And these guys being like fishermen from small villages. You know, they're used to being out, out in the, in the, on the sea or out, you know, in, in, out in the, the outskirts of town. And they come into Jerusalem and then finally to be, you know, to have a moment for them to come out of the temple and to look up and see things that, that like, almost like a tourist. So you go places. Why? Because so you can go see what man has built. And what I, what I see here, and then the, the, even this disciple saying, oh, Jesus, teacher, look at this magnificent stuff. But Jesus sees things as they truly are. And he knows the future, and he's like, look, all of these magnificent things that you're, like, amazed with, that you're actually, like, giving glory to and praising, they're not going to last. And he knows what's, what's going to happen, that eventually the temple's going to be torn down. It's not going to last. And I wonder if this is kind of the first thing that gets in the way of us being awake to the reality that Jesus is going to return, that much like this disciple, that we are captivated by the things of this world. And I know in my heart that... that I am so easily captivated by things other than Jesus. And that we as a, as a culture are so easily captivated by things because we're, we're so self-absorbed in things that we want. I even think back to like when I was, uh, first came to Christ and first thinking about like, you know, Christ's return. And, and I remember praying like, okay, I know that this is a good thing, but Jesus, can you just wait? I wasn't married yet. And I was like, can you just wait and not come back yet? Because... 
I kind of want to, you know, I want to travel. I want to see the world. I'd like to get married. I'd like to have kids. I had this whole list of things that I wanted to do that, that like, these are my priorities, right? Not realizing just how much better the things of God are. Like, what are the desires of God? Would it not be so much better to, like, be in alignment with his desires and what he wants for his world than what I want for my world? So we are so easily captivated by our own things, which means if we're captivated by something else that we are distracted from God. And uh, it actually came up in a podcast I was listening to this week where they were talking about the attention span in, in, in our, our population and how it's decreased in the last decade. Again, I, don't, I didn't catch the footnote of, of uh, who did this original research, but supposedly our attention span has dropped from about 12 seconds down to eight seconds. And, and the quote that gets thrown out there is that now we are officially have a smaller attention span than goldfish that can concentrate for nine seconds. Okay, I'm not sure who did the study. I'm like, okay, how do we test the goldfish's concentration? It's like, well, we hold up a, a little piece of food in front of it, and we have our stopwatch, and he's staring at the food, and five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, he looked away. Is that, I, maybe, I don't know. But, but what I do know is that I see this. If you look at movies, like how quickly it changes from one camera angle to another camera angle and back and forth. We actually just, on uh, Friday night, watched some of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with uh, Dick Van Dyke in it. Anybody familiar with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang fans? Yeah? Chitty Chitty Bang Anyways, I won't sing it for you. But, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, we got to thank you there. You're probably, yes. Um, but what I noticed as you're watching the video is like how long, I think it was made in the 60s, how long it'll hold on one camera angle for like, it feels like forever. And you were so used to things switching back and forth to keep our attention. And this flashing of one thing and then another and then another. We aren't always this way. But this also means that if, if our, it's about an average of like eight seconds of, of uh, attention span. Maybe I just lost my attention right there. <laughs> that means we've, we've each probably been distracted about uh, 70 times in the first 10 minutes of me speaking. So good luck. We can make it through this together. We could do this. We got this. But... You know, when I think a lot of that, that, that distraction comes also that we're a culture of multitasking, that we try and do so many things at once. And what really what multitasking is, is just like, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and we're switching back and forth so quickly. And we're, we're just not good at that. We're not, I am not good at multitasking. Again, you can ask my wife. Um, early on when we were married, I would like to, you know, I play guitar and I would just play and she'd come and walk up to me and she would start talking. And I would say, oh, uh-huh. And then I'd keep playing. And she's like, wait, are you really listening to me? Oh, yeah. No, I can play guitar and listen. Yeah. And, and then it, it, she asked me a question. I'm like, wait, what'd you say? Oh, <laughs> no, I cannot. She's like, and then and she learned. Okay, every time I'm playing the guitar, okay, Aiden, stop playing. I want to talk to you. Because I can't. I can't do two things at once. We are so easily distracted from the things of God. We are captivated by the things of this world. And when we give this the attention to the things that are passing away. You know, what, what, what hope do we have to be really awake to this reality that Christ is coming? So we're going to jump in and see what, what, uh, what comes next here. In Mark 13, verse 3, it says this. So as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? 
And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Because I think we're fairly similar to these disciples. Like, we want to know, like, when's the end going to come so that we can be ready for it and we can be prepared if you just tell us when. But here's what Jesus says. He answers them. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But... The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth, birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So as we list, run through, like, the, the disciples ask for signs. They ask for when, and Jesus doesn't say, like, the when, right? But he gives them all of these signs. And if we run through this list of, of signs, okay, like, let me see. Uh, people coming in Jesus' name saying that I am here. Fa false prophets or false people claiming to be Christ. That's happened. Okay, what's next? Nation rising against nation, wars and rumors of wars. Like, okay, that's happened. I even think today of, like, okay, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Is there something going to happen? I don't know. Um... This is happening. Uh, what else is next? Check on that. Um, earthquakes. Check. Famines. Check. Um, persecution of the church. Happening. Okay. So all of these signs, families breaking down. Happening. And Jesus even says further on in here, he says in verse 30, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Like, Jesus wasn't surprised. Like, he's not, he's not saying, like, okay, this is when it's going to happen. He's not answering the when question. And so I start to wonder, like, okay, Jesus, what are you trying to teach us here when you're telling us about all of these signs? And so then I start looking at not the signs so much, but what are the commands that he tells us about how to live in the midst of all of this that's gonna, that has happened and will continue to happen, Right? And this is, this is where I see, like, the commands that are in there. So we're going back up again and see what these commands are. He says this. He says that we are to not be alarmed, that we're to not be led astray. Let me start with that one. Not be led astray. To not be alarmed. To be on your guard. To not be anxious. And so I think he's telling these for a, a different reason. That it's Jesus' heart for the disciples to shepherd them through that Jesus is revealing the brokenness of the world to them to prepare them. And so he's revealing the brokenness of the world to prepare us so that we might become more like him as we live through it. And so, what does this look like to become more like Jesus? Now, oftentimes when, I, when I'm preparing a message, uh, a phrase will kind of come into my, my, my mind, and it just kind of gets stuck in there and goes over and over again. And, and, and the phrase with this message was a non-anxious presence. 
be a non-anxious presence. So I'm wondering even like if nothing else, like okay, if the Spirit wanted to say something today to the church here, is like well, how are we becoming more like Jesus and becoming a non-anxious presence? Because I, like, I know that's not who I am. I am not a non-anxious person. You know, I might be like, oh, Aiden, he's not too anxious about things. But uh, I think one of the times when it was most revealed to me and how anxious I get about situations or about conflict, uh, well, uh, years ago, I, uh, before I was in, was in ministry, I was fresh out of college. My, my grandfather had passed away, and I, uh, he ran a family business called Indian Caverns, which is about you know, 20 minutes down the road here and uh, no one in the family could step in to take over. And I was like, oh, it's 22. I was like, I, can, I think I could probably do that. So I moved out to the house of the cave and uh, had my first attempt at running a small, my first and only attempt at running a small business, and uh, where I learned like, oh, I am not, I'm not so good at this, at like uh, purchasing and uh, managing employees and payroll and like doing all the stuff. And particularly it was the, the, the conflict with interpersonal conflict with employees. Like there was a one who was there who was just, she just loved to like jab at me and, and she knew exactly like what she was, I think, I think she was just having fun with it. But she, I, would, I would talk to her and I'd say, okay, so uh, here's the schedule for this week. And she's like, that's just not gonna work for me. And I'd be like, uh, okay. And she said, there. And one time she said, there, you're doing it. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm doing what? He says that, that lip thing. What do you mean? He says, anytime, and she finally kind of let her cat out of the bag, like what she was doing. He's like, anytime, like when I like come back at you, like your lip just starts to quiver. You, you smile, but then your lip is quivering. It's like, I know I got you. I was like, ah, oh. yeah, you're right. Like I'm kind of tearing up inside. I don't know what to do here. But like this, 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 non, uh, this anxiousness that just kind of comes out of us, like whatever that is. And I think even more with this, the pandemic, how much our society has gone into just responding in anxiousness about all sorts of things. And yet, I see in the midst of all of this tribulation that's, that, that is here and is, will be here, what does Jesus, who does he tell us to be? He says, don't be alarmed. He says, yeah, be on your guard, but don't be anxious. And he's calling us to this non-anxious presence. And so I, that phrase was in my head. I, I had to look into it. Like, where did this come from? And I realized it came from... Um, he was a, a rabbi named Edwin uh, Friedman, who was also a therapist, and he wrote a book that's common in, in ministry. Uh, I, I have to confess, I have the book. I have not read the whole thing. But in the book, it's called Generation to Generation, uh, he talks about a non-anxious presence and how applying family systems theory to organizations like churches and synagogues and saying that just like a family has a culture that influences its well-being, so too do churches have a culture that influences its well-being. And he said that in order to end what he called a vicious cycle of like just responding out of fear, responding into situations negatively, uh, what happens is that you'd respond and then a herd mentality would come about to that response and people will, will just move in this direction of chaos and then there's a quick fix that often comes in and then that just degrades like the leadership and, and, and further on. And he said what, what needs to happen in order to break this cycle is that there needs to be a non-anxious presence that's entered in there. It makes me think of like oh, the Holy Spirit and Jesus as that non-anxious presence. But then we too, how we're becoming like him to be that non-anxious presence in the world that can enter in and say like, look, I am connected. Are you saying to not be led astray? Don't be led astray, that we are faithful to Christ, that even though whatever happens in the world, we are faithful, we are connected. And yet as Christians, you know, our home is not 
here. Our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we are yet, we are connected. You were separate. And so he's calling us to step into this, being connected and, and seeking solutions, but also not to be anxious about the world. Because, and here's the big because, like why, why, how can we do this? Because he tells us the end. He tells us the future. He tells us of what's going to happen. in the end, that he's coming. And, and I even think of Jesus, of how he embodied this perfectly. That even in his earthly life, as he was arrested, as he faced the trial before Pilate, as he was crucified, just that, that practicing, that non-anxious presence, and how did he do it? Relying fully on God, trusting that God was good, knowing that he had a plan, surrendering himself completely to his Father, and so we, too, are called to that non-anxious presence. So that's one way we can be more like Jesus that we see in these commands. The next thing, the way that I see that we can be more like Jesus is just that we, to, to long for his return. Not only are we to be non-anxious, but we're to, to long for this day when he's going to be reunited with his church. And you think about Jesus and how he feels and like, you know, as the bride of the church, being his bride and him as the groom, how much in, in earthly terms do like people long for their wedding day to be here, that they might be together and join together in marriage with their wife. How much more is Jesus longing for the day when he's reunited? And do we as the church, as the bride, just be like, oh, we're not looking forward. Are we looking forward to that or not? And what does that posture look like? So in the midst of all of these things that, that, that Jesus is saying is, is happening and will happen, you know, the, that we are to, to be those people like the early church that say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, that we would long for that. So, so what does this look like? So when we see death in the world around us, that yes, we are the presence of God here, that we, we would comfort those who mourn, but that our hearts inside would say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, bring your eternal life for all who call on your name, that we might join you in, in your resurrection body of glory that will never die. And we see conflict in the world, that yes, we would pray and that we would work for peace, but, but we would say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, and bring the tree whose leaves are for the healing of nations that we read about in Revelation. And when we see famine, that we would work to feed those who are hungry, but we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, and begin the wedding feast of the Lamb that welcomes in all who would come. When we see natural disasters, that we would go and we would bring relief. We would say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Renew the earth that's crying out to be set free from its bondage to corruption. When we see persecution in the church, that we would pray and provide support, but we would say, Maranatha, come, Lord. Set your people free to worship you in your presence in the new Jerusalem that our hearts, any time we see the brokenness of sin in the world, that, that it would automatically lift our eyes upward to him and yearn for his return. And as I was saying, like, we see this, that, that his return is coming. I'm going to jump down to verse 24 to 27, where it tells us about that. And Jesus is saying, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is telling these, he will come in glory and power. And so what does he say at the end of this chapter? He says that, that not only should we long for his return, but we also need to be ready for his return, to prepare ourselves. It's like the bride preparing herself for the wedding feast. How are we as a church, and how are we preparing to be with him? And this is what he says at the end of the chapter about this keeping awake, about being prepared. In verse 33, he says, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So becoming more like Jesus is just being awake ready for his return. I think there's several ways that we can be ready. What does that look like? Well, the first way is just salvation, like working out our salvation, like to commit to him and to say like, okay, if there's any question in your heart, you think about, okay, like even if like the the movie left behind and like that first scene, if you think of it like when, 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 you know, he was left behind and there were like these empty seats in the airplane where their clothes were deflated, where people used to be, if that gets you anxiety of like, am I going to be one of the ones that are left behind? there's assurance that we can have in Christ that that's not you. We confess our sins to him that we repent and we say, Lord, we need you. Lord, that you would be my savior. We call out to him for salvation and say, God, we need you. And say, God, I need you. And put our trust and faith in him fully. So maybe that's a step of, of just becoming just being ready for his return is a step of salvation, knowing Christ as Savior. I think there's a second part to it, too, is just moving forward in, in, our, in our sanctification. Okay, Christ is Savior, Christ is Sanctifier, and what he, what he says in making us more like him and being and doing the work. It says here, like, the, the, the parable he has at the end about the servants, that they would come in um, that leaves the servants in charge, each with his work. I think part of that work is that work that he wants to do in us and making us more like him, that the church would be ready for Christ's return in prayer, that we would be ready in purity, that we would be ready in like anything that he puts on our hearts as we say, okay, God, search my heart and know me. If there's any just grievous way in me, that, that, that he would search that out, that we'd be open to him to put his finger on something and say, look, this is an area that you are still holding on to, and I want you to release it to me. It's that act of surrender that then leaves space for the Spirit to move in. And that's, I think, the heart of sanctification is just our surrendering the areas of our lives that we're still holding on to. Whether it's an area of of, of sin is what the common thing is, but also if it's just some area of control. Because ultimately it's us putting our trust in ourselves instead of our trust in Him, even though we trust Him for our salvation, but maybe not in this area of our lives. So maybe God's put something on your heart today, you know, to be more ready today than you were yesterday for his return. And I think the last part of it is, is um, the whole idea of Christ as coming king for the founder of the alliance, A.B. Simpson, was that this is what motivated missions in the alliance. 
If you notice back in in verse 10 in, in chapter 13 here, it says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. If you look at the corresponding passage in Matthew 24, 14, it reads this way. It says, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so the founder, A.B. Simpson, read this as like, okay, this is our work. And his, his slogan was like, bring back the king, that, that we can be a part of Jesus' mission in the world and reaching nations that have never heard of him in order to bring back Jesus, to be a part of what he's doing. And at some point, people push back and would say like, wait, do you, does this mean that like he's trying to force Jesus' hand and saying, okay, we're going to go do all this missional work, and then therefore Jesus has to come at that moment. We're going to force him to come back. And I don't think that was his heart. I think the heart was instead like, look, let's join in what Jesus is already doing. Let's join in what we know is the desire of his heart, that there would be people of every tongue, tribe, and nation that are worshiping together. This is his heart for all of humanity. How can we get on board with that mission, and how can we add more workers into the, send them out into the field so that we might join him in his mission that maybe in some way we can speed up what might take longer if we're just sitting here waiting. So as a motivation, you know, if we don't think about the return of Christ, then too, like what, what motivation is there for evangelism? Like, ah, he's, he's not coming back anytime soon. And yet we, no one knows the hour, the day. And so I wonder if some of like, the evangelical zeal that, that, that feels like it's kind of waning is due in part to just a lack of awareness of Christ's return, not being awake to that reality. So today, may we lift our eyes and set our hearts on that thought that yes, Christ is coming. Like the early church saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, as we see the brokenness of the world, that, that our hearts would, yes, we'd want to be presence, a redeeming presence, a restorative presence, but that we'd also be a, a presence that longs for our king. So let's pray together. And I invite the worship team back up to the stage as well. well Jesus, we, we can't do this without you. It's not that I can like manifest or make in myself some desire that to just, you know, create a desire to want you to come. But God, that your spirit would breathe that passion into us, that your spirit would wake us up to that reality that you are coming, that there is work for us here. Jesus, that we would move forward in that work. God, that you would breathe that life. That this would not be something to, to, to if we are in Christ, to not be afraid of, but to, to long for. I think of Paul who says that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To have that, pers- such that, that perspective of eternity with you as being of such great value that that our hearts would long to be reunited with you above every other thing that this world has to offer. 
So open our eyes, God, to see you, who you truly are, for your glory, your majesty. God, that we would be a church that's just waiting on you, that's ready for you, that's preparing ourselves for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.